Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Loaded with menacing-looking black gadgetry, the white SUVs look like they belong on a Star Wars set rather than in the boho neighbourhoods of San Francisco. The all-electric Jaguars are the first driverless taxis to crawl the city's famously steep streets. They represent new hope for the AI revolution, but there was something tentative about their unveiling this week. For now, only carefully selected customers can hail the robocabs, and there'll be a real person in the driving seat when they show up. So-called operators will have their hands on their knees, ready to grab the wheel if things go awry. Customers are banned from discussing the rides publicly. Waymo, the Google car company behind the launch, acknowledges that progress in driverless technology has been slower than they envisaged. The bombast of previous Silicon Valley product launches has gone. Down the road in Cupertino, Apple's immaculate HQ lies mostly empty, with staff not expected back until next year. These are some of the signs the San Francisco Bay Area's rebound from the pandemic is stuttering. Might it end up even harder hit in the long run? This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Priddo, The Economist's US editor, and each week we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is San Francisco in trouble? San Francisco managed the pandemic well, keeping death rates relatively low. But the city's economy is rebounding more slowly than others as the tech industry embraces remote work. And it faces a swathe of problems relating to out-migration, crime and poorly run schools. As in statewide California politics, recall elections are causing political instability. Why is the home of innovation so hard to govern? With me to discuss all of this are Alexandra Suich-Bass, who writes about politics and technology for The Economist and also covers the two most populous states, Texas and California, and John Fasman, the US digital editor. Alexandra, let's start with you. How's your week been? Everything's been good, thank you. I always have fun thinking and writing about San Francisco, although if I ever speak critically of California, I get very heated letters to the editor um, and email. So looking forward to the feedback. <laughs> I feel like as a native Californian, you have the right to be rude about the place. And, and you also lived in San Francisco for a long time, right? Yes, native San Franciscan. And I was there during this most recent tech boom, um, and then also some of the more recent troubled times. So um, I speak with authority, but also love for the place. Fasman, how about you? How's your week been? You've, you've also been to California recently. 
Yeah, I was in California recently to report a long series on the future of food, which should at some point be published in this newspaper. Um, unlike Alexandra, I speak with no authority when it comes to California, but a tremendous amount of love. Um, I am a Northeasterner born and bred, but I always get really starry-eyed about California. I absolutely love the Bay Area. Again, I don't think I've been there more than more than six or seven times in my life, but it is physically certainly the most beautiful city in America, and it feels like someplace where the future is always being built. So I'm looking forward to this episode. It is a very beautiful city. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the not so great parts of San Francisco. We're not going to be talking about Afghanistan because we did that last week, even though that remains the big story. And there have been bomb blasts in Kabul um, in the run up to us recording this show. I expect that's a topic we'll return to in a future week. So Alexandra, let's get into this. You were in San Francisco recently to report on how the city's getting on. What did you find when you were there? So San Francisco as a city controlled the COVID-19 epidemic quite well. It had the lowest death rate of any big city. It has what I'd probably describe as a culture of caution, of masking. If you walk around even outside without a mask, you get judgmental looks from people across the street. I mean, you see people driving alone in their cars wearing masks. But even while San Franciscans have mostly stayed safe from COVID, COVID has really exacerbated some of the city's existing problems and laid bare some new ones. If you walk downtown, it has the feel of that film, 28 Days Later, that post-apocalyptic film. You know, you don't really see many people at all. A lot of people are working from home. Um, and the people you do see are homeless. Um, you see a lot of mentally ill people. And so you have a real challenge where San Francisco, a very idealistic, progressive place that wants to reduce inequality and cope with social problems, is dealing with social problems. And they seem more acute than they have in any recent time in the city. So I walked around with Matt Haney, who represents the Tenderloin District on the Board of Supervisors, which is the city's legislative branch. And one of the things that he pointed out was the community safety ambassadors who zip around on scooters uh, and try and make people feel safe walking through the neighborhood. We have a lot of these folks here in the green jackets who are now out all over this area. And I can show you uh, if you want to walk through a I'd little bit it. of a tougher area. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Hope you have insurance on this, uh, on <laughs> Zoom, this recorder. Uh, a Zoom recorder. Uh, they probably won't be that interested in you. Um, <laughs> So this area here, you see these guys we have in their green jackets, and, and they're providing this community safety uh, to make sure that there's eyes on the street, that they're managing the street. Hey, and, how are you? Uh, so everyone has scooters? Yeah, they have scooters. They're up and down this block and around the block, and they're kind of managing the street. Because um, we're really close to Twitter's, yeah, to Twitter's, Twitter's office. Yeah, two blocks that way. Two blocks that way. And Uber, how far away are uh, we? Oh yeah, three blocks. But right now, no one's in the office, right? So what's going to happen to I think these that Uber, small businesses? I think, but this is one of the challenges that we face there, that a lot of the, the street traffic from the office workers is not here, and then we rely on them for business. For decades, San Francisco has been a place where uh, around the world we've been known as a place where if you want to start a new business, a new company that might be a little different, might try things a little differently, might need some, some crazy people like you to, to, to join or invest, you start in San Francisco. And that was in you know, information technology, uh, uh, social media, but also biotech, 
digital music, art, culture, other things. And there's a huge question as to whether that is going to continue in San Francisco. And it's my view that it should. I think it's a good thing. Uh, I don't think, I don't blame that sector for our challenges. I think we have failed to adequately uh, share that those opportunities well, and that wealth. You're you're um, unique in not blaming Ken for San Francisco's <laughs> challenges, aren't you? Tex the favorite whipping whipping boy in this city. But. Well, I, I I don't blame them. I I, I blame all of us uh, for not building the sector out and having uh, the expectations that you know we build the adequate level of housing and transportation that we uh, make sure that our folks who live in the city have access to jobs in in those uh, sectors but there's a lot of uncertainty about what the future of the city will look like because in my district you know if you walk through a lot of my district right now uh, it's pretty empty you know you walk through through on a Thursday afternoon that usually would be you know full of people and it looks like you know Thanksgiving on a Sunday and everybody's at home because nobody's coming into downtown San Francisco anymore for conferences or or businesses uh, or office work and has all of the small businesses that are down there are, are, are closed. And for that reason, a lot of the vibrancy uh, and, and the, the conditions where there was a lot of creativity and collaboration that led to all these exciting things being, being happening in the world, uh, that's not happening right now. It strikes me that this is really an existential moment for San Francisco. I think it is an ex existential moment. Uh, what type of city we want to be uh, for the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years is in many ways being decided right now. Good luck with Thanks everything. Thank you so much. Alexandra, San Francisco may be the most puzzling city in America. Lots of people have left as a result of the pandemic, as you write in your article this week. But the cost of living remains incredibly high, I think 40 or 44% higher than New York. It's famously the home to America's most innovative companies, many of whom are based nearby. And yet the city really struggles to fix some pretty basic problems. I mean, year after year, it seems the politicians you know, promise to make inroads into problems with crime, problems with homelessness, and yet they don't make much progress. So before we get to exploring why that is, what do you see as San Francisco's biggest problems at the moment? Uh, well, you just named a few of them. I think a lot of these could be wrapped up into the general category of quality of life. And San Francisco, as you say, is the most expensive city to live in in America. And yet a lot of people don't feel like they're getting a lot of bang for their buck. And that's why during the pandemic, when San Francisco had such long-running restrictions on businesses opening, people left to the suburbs, Marin, the East Bay, or left completely and moved to a different state. I think that people feel that when they can't rely on the city to provide essential functions like open public schools, San Francisco was the only 
top 25 city not to bring most students back during the school year. Instead, the whole episode read kind of like a bad Hollywood script where the school board was debating whether or not to rename schools. It scrapped a merit-based program at the top high school in San Francisco because it was deemed to be racist. There was an issue with the school board suing her other um, members for $87 million. And I think that was one of the reasons that people just got so fed up with San Francisco. People felt like they couldn't rely on the city to do right by them, even though ultimately people pay quite a lot in taxes for the privilege of living there. And so I think San Francisco is having to reckon with its idealism and wanting to be a bastion of progressive politics and achieve things that it felt like the national government did not achieve in the four years under Trump. Um, But then ultimately its record during the pandemic of really failing most of its citizens. But as you say, its taxes are really high. So if people aren't getting that bang for their buck, where is their buck going? Yeah, I think that's the the big question on a lot of people's minds. I had the distinct pleasure of actually reading through the 300 pages of the city budget and then its five-year plan. And it's pretty astonishing how much goes into funding the government's operations. I mean, you have a huge bureaucracy that kind of runs a little bit, like I mentioned in my piece this week, like a startup that's flush with cash, but little oversight. Uh, and so you have a of the city and county's employees earning $150,000 or more in salaries. You have 150 of them earning salaries of $300,000 and more. And yes, it's true that the cost of living is quite high, but I think, you know, a lot of people would be very surprised to hear that London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, is the top paid mayor in the country. And I think people question, yes, what it is that exactly that money is buying. I didn't know those numbers before I read your piece, Alexandra, and I also didn't realise the extent of corruption in San Francisco city government and how busy the FBI and others have been rooting it out. I think a lot of San Franciscans actually probably don't know that. San Francisco is such a busy place and people are so busy dreaming up the future that sometimes people don't even have time to read local media. And San Francisco is the centre of a massive FBI probe. Uh, Three department heads have been charged um, for crimes, including bribery. And it's actually ensnared the mayor, although that hasn't gotten much attention. The mayor, London Breed, recently agreed to pay $23,000 in a fine to the Ethics Commission for various offenses, including allowing one of the men who was uh, charged by the FBI to pay for her car repairs. And I spoke to quite a few city hall insiders. Um, and, and one of the perceptions is just that San Francisco operates as kind of a clubby place where people don't want to call each other out. Um, and you have a lot of the people who have been in power for a very long time, but aren't asking each other hard questions. And that's how you create a system where there isn't a lot of oversight and accountability. You see that with grants for homelessness and um, other government services, and just huge huge holes and a lack of transparency that I think this FBI probe has really gotten the attention of people in City Hall in terms of pointing to where there need to be solutions. It's just not clear that the incentives are there to to make the difficult changes that need to happen. I suppose one way to think about the, the sort of the problem of corruption is that it stems from a political monoculture, right? The city is so uniformly liberal 
the competitive elections of the primaries, there's no sort of external political pressure from another party on members of government. But I guess that's true of a lot of cities, right? Cities tend to be liberal. So what about San Francisco is it, do you think, that has bred that culture of governance? I think there are a couple of things. One is, I think that the local Democratic Party machine is incredibly powerful. It's called the DCCC. Um, and they, of course, endorse candidates. But voters who are potentially very busy or have low information, um, don't realize what it is they're voting for. So when they hear a progressive, they think they might be voting for a Bernie Sanders-like candidate. In fact, the progressives in San Francisco are not that progressive at all when it comes to one of the biggest issues in San Francisco, which is land use. They oppose new builds and increasing density. Um, It's the moderates who support that. Um, And so that's one inconsistency where I think voters are electing politicians who do not necessarily represent the values they are hoping they will bring to office. Another thing that I thought was really interesting that came up in my reporting, one person told me that San Francisco is the city that reacts to problems elsewhere. You saw that a lot during the Trump administration administration where San Francisco uh, and California more broadly uh, were trying to craft an alternative policy vision um, to what was coming out of Washington. But one example of that I would point to was the schools and the renaming that was kind of a response to a national conversation that was not necessarily a local issue. Another would be criminal justice reform. So Chesa Boudin, who is the district attorney in San Francisco, who is quite controversial at this point, it ran on a platform of uh, ending mass incarceration. In fact, San Francisco has a much lower incarceration rate than the nation. It's about one-fifth of the state's and nation's rate. So some opponents of uh, the district attorney, Chesa Boudin, would argue that that's, again, a very San Francisco solution to a national problem, not necessarily San Francisco's own problems. Okay, thanks both. We'll go back to San Francisco's hippie heyday in a moment to trace the origins of California's peculiar brand of democratic politics. But first, the usual reminder, it's time to subscribe to The Economist. If you don't already, you'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. This week's Lexington column is on California's governor, Gavin Newsom's fight for political survival. There's plenty more on Afghanistan too, plus an in-depth look at entropic gravity the new theory of everything that has physics in flux. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. When I was young, there was an amazing publication called the Whole Earth Catalog, which was one of the Bibles of my generation. A few years before he died, Steve Jobs, the Apple founder, spoke to students at Stanford University, Silicon Valley's Mind Mine. It was created by a fellow named Stuart Brand, not far from here in Menlo Park, and he brought it to life with his poetic touch. He spoke about the debt California's tech visionaries owed to a famous hippie handbook. This was in the late 60s, before personal computers and desktop publishing, so it was all made with typewriters, scissors and Polaroid cameras. It was sort of like Google in paperback form 35 years before Google came along. It was idealistic, overflowing with neat tools and great notions. The Whole Earth catalogue became an iconic artefact of the computer revolution. Its content prefigured the internet, 
hacks and tips from readers, and ads for life-enhancing kit like early mountain bikes. Stanford historian Fred Turner has also traced its outsized ideological impact. The tech titans of the San Francisco Bay Area share more than an antipathy to tailoring with their hippie forebears. That kind of clarity was the sort of thing that you could get with it. It was not a mind expander, it was a mind concentrator. In an interview for the Victoria and Albert Museum, the catalogue's publisher, Stuart Brand, describes the influence psychedelic drugs had on him in the 60s. But it was after watching Stanford computing students lose themselves so utterly in an early Space Invaders game that he realised how technology could free minds more effectively than LSD. I had one of the few documented cases of a genuine um, creative experience in the idea of on LSD, on a rooftop in San Francisco, realizing that if we ever got a photograph of the Earth from space, it would change people's perspective on everything. Brandt lobbied NASA to release satellite images to put on the cover of his catalogue. From this new perspective, governments and borders were invisible. With individuals in control of their own mindset, rules and governance would be redundant. The counterculture became about turning away from politics to focus on changing the self. And the communes were trying to reinvent civilization, which was bold and admirable, and doing it poorly because they were all liberal arts majors who dropped out who had no idea how to do anything. Brand eschewed politics in favour of personal power based on transferable skills and ideas. His catalogue provided the philosophical foundations of the leaderless internet. So my perspective was to try to bring, because I'd been trained as a scientist, as a biologist, to bring a kind of a respect for science, for technology and engineering and making things to that movement. And the whole Earth Catalog access to tools was an effort to basically enable the skills that would be needed to reinvent civilization. To this day, internet culture favours individual expression and self-improvement over social action. The problem, as the historian Fred Turner points out, is that in rejecting authority, the freedom-loving communes of 1960s California tended to wind up starkly divided, by gender and by race, in an eerie prefiguring of our social media world. John, let's start with you. One of the things that struck me while reading Alexandra's excellent piece this week is that because so many of America's leading technologists in and around the Bay Area have grown up with a philosophy that either thinks politics is sort of beneath it or thinks it's irrelevant, a lot of people who might otherwise change the way San Francisco works are kind of checked out of politics. And that plays some part in explaining why San Francisco seems so unable to fix its persistent social problems. Yeah, I think there's something to that. You know, the truth is most problems aren't terribly sexy, but those mundane problems still need solving, right? So it it sounds great to say to other people, to say to yourself, you know, I'm working on an idea that's going to change the world that's going to make everything better that's going to i'm going to i'm going to reinvent you know transportation i'm going to reinvent how people eat i'm going to reinvent how people travel 
that all sounds much more exciting than I'm going to help marginally improve technology for city government. But if you want to have a well-run city, that latter set of problems is, is much more important. And you're also right to point out the sort of cynicism toward government that I think exists in Silicon Valley that I think is quite disturbing. I mean, you, you see it in donors like Peter Thiel, who, who bankrolled Donald Trump because he thought he would blow up the system. You see it in people who think that democracy and freedom are no longer compatible. And I think it's a sort of tragedy of the common situation in, in reverse that tech has enabled and that, that it thrives on. Alexandra, one theory that you advance in the piece that explains San Francisco's dysfunction, which I thought was pretty intriguing, comes from Joel Kotkin at Chapman University. And he argues that it's the absence of a middle class in San Francisco, a middle class that's been driven out because the city's so expensive, that explains a lot of the political failings. Can you tell us a bit more about why that might be the case? San Francisco has become so expensive that the people who are able to buy houses are basically the people who have gone through a very successful IPO, inherited a house, or um, are trust fund kids who whose parents foot the bill. It's not a place where you can start from scratch um, and build up. And what's really bizarre is that even some techies feel poor in San Francisco. I mean, earning a CEO salary can't necessarily buy you a house. And so Joel Kotkin, who I I think is a very smart California observer um, and San Francisco watcher, thinks that the fact that the American dream cannot be achieved in San Francisco is part of what's driving people out of there. And then you see a radicalization of the politics where you don't necessarily have people voting for things that might actually improve a lot of people's quality of life, like, you know, investing in the criminal justice system and the police um, or investing in schools. Instead, you see young techies who are transient. They come in and out of the city. Um, and then older people who have owned their houses for a generation and therefore can afford to live in the city. And that affects voting behavior. How is this reversible, do you think? I mean, how do you get... I'm, 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 I'm sympathetic to that thesis that the middle class hollow out is what's driving a lot of San Francisco's problems. But... Uh, how do you reverse it? Is, it? is it just as simple as, as building a lot more houses? Well, I think COVID-19 is a really important potential reset for San Francisco. I think everything depends on what the perceived lessons from COVID-19 are. So you're seeing more techies leave than you've seen in any time in the last 10 years. Uh, some San Franciscans are cheering that. They think that that is a huge opportunity for prices to go lower, for kind of the gritty creativity of the city to return. Others, I think rightly, are concerned about the tax base um, and what will happen if companies and individuals choose not to be in San Francisco. I think as you know, Matt Haney spoke about earlier, tech has been blamed for a lot of San Francisco's problems um, and has been singly focused on as the solution, i.e. get tech to pay more in taxes and tech companies to, you know, eliminate their cafeterias, which was one proposal that didn't go through, or there was, there was an overpaid executives tax, which did go through, which taxes companies at a higher rate if employees um, and the CEOs aren't paid within a certain band. And so, you know, tech has been the enemy for so much of San Francisco's recent history. I mean, I think that San Francisco and San Franciscans need to look hard at themselves and understand that the problems are much more numerous and complex than tech. And that's where you get the solutions. Alexandra, there is this intriguing paradox here, isn't there, that the part of the country that's so good at inventing solutions to humanity's problems and turning those solutions into multi-billion dollar companies is 
next door or also headquartered in a city that can't solve these fairly, what seem like basic problems that other cities in America manage to do a better job at solving. What is your explanation for that? You know, do you think the fault lies more with San Francisco's political culture and its hostility to techie types? Or do you think the fault lies more with the fact that the techies are checked out of politics? Or, or do you think it's, you know, there's a lot of blame to go around here? Yeah, I think that um, in the last decade, I think that people have gravitated to San Francisco because it's such an important cluster for tech knowledge and expertise and funding, um, but have shown very little interest in helping to solve the city's problem. So I think civic engagement to the extent possible would go some way in helping improve the relations between uh, the tech community and San Francisco. But, you know, I used to write about the tech business uh, in San Francisco. And one of the things about tech companies is that they're interested in wholesale disruption. And you don't see techies work within existing companies or within existing industries to fix them. They want to completely reimagine things. So you didn't see Uber go to taxi companies and say, how can we improve the process by you know, putting you on an app? They, they got average drivers to start driving their own cars and completely rethought the system. It's really hard to do that for government. You have to work within the system and be willing to improve that. And I think there's a philosophical uh, aversion to doing that by the tech community. But I would say that, in my opinion, and the opinion of some other San Franciscans, the government could benefit from more business expertise. You ultimately have a whole fat cat class of civil servants who haven't necessarily run anything besides government departments. Um, and so there is a question of whether a Bloomberg-like person who might have different politics than Bloomberg when it comes to stop and frisk and the like, but might have a business background, whether someone like that could come in and do some good for the city. I agree. That's an intriguing thought, isn't it? I mean, but I think you're also right about the disruption point. I mean, disruption is, as you say, often a great thing in tech, and it's the route to building great riches and fantastic companies. In public policy, it's often a disaster. I mean, disrupting the police department would not be a popular thing in San Francisco, even though it's failing. And I suppose there's also another kind of difference, isn't there, which is that public policy problems, I think, generally are not like engineering problems. I mean, if you talk to lots of politicians, what they'll often say is that working out what to do about a problem is sort of the easy bit in politics. The hard bit is persuading people to come along with you and then also implementation of the policy. And it's those two areas where city government seems so lacking. And, uh, and I agree, at least with the implementation part, some, some business experience might help there. Okay, thank you both. We'll be back in a moment to find out why recall elections, another curiosity of San Francisco politics, are such a big deal there and in the rest of California. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
One of the quirks of American politics is the recall election, where voters get a chance to remove public officials in the middle of their term of office. Alexandra, we're just a couple of weeks away from a big statewide recall election in which the Republicans are trying to remove California's governor, Gavin Newsom. There are also recall elections in San Francisco. Can you explain why these are so widespread in California and and what's going on at the moment? So Californians have had recalls at their disposal for as a tool for 110 years, but COVID has made people increasingly upset with their political leaders. You see this on San Francisco and you see this on a statewide basis in California. You also see this happening in other states. I spoke to Josh Spivak, who's the author of a new book called, appropriately enough, Recall Elections from Alexander Hamilton to Gavin Newsom. San Francisco appears to be the recall capital of the country, or of the globe even. Uh, There's school board members facing recalls, the DA is facing a serious recall threat, and California Governor Gavin Newsom is, of course, facing a recall, and Gavin Newsom was the former mayor of San Francisco. Each one of them was a separate issue, but combined, they feel like the same thing. And when you look beyond San Francisco, does your research show that recalls are becoming more common in America? Well, they're definitely more common on the state level, or there are, uh, to say, there are many more attempts on the state level. Uh, To put this in context, from 1908, when the first recall law was signed for state level officials in Oregon, to 1971, there were five. Since 1971, there have been 34 state legislators who have gotten to the ballot. Plus, this will be the third governor to get to the ballot. Actually, there was a fourth that would have gotten, but he was impeached that day in Arizona. Half of those state legislators have been this century, as have all three of the governors. Do you think recalls are helpful tools or destabilizing? I think they do destabilize a little, but they're a statement in favor of democracy. America's entire political system has been a move towards a more democratic system, from the direct election of senators, suffrage, the end of slavery, and eventually the granting of the power of the vote to the former slaves. Every single move in America has really been in that direction, and that's where the recall comes from. But the recall does grasp the attention because it is a much more personal uh, attack. It is kick this specific person out of power rather than let's change the policy. And you've analyzed the results of past recalls. So what does your analysis suggest about Newsom's likelihood of, of getting removed successfully from office if history is any guide? There's a few separate facts. One is recalls are astonishingly astonishingly successful. About 60% of officials facing a recall get removed, and another 6% resign. In California, it's even more successful. Over three quarters are removed or resign. This is over the last 10 years. Most of the officials facing recalls on the state legislative level were kicked out. But the other factor is that Newsom is running in a very democratic state, So that really helps him. He won by 62%. If you look at the gubernatorial recalls, the election results were fairly close to the re-election results that these officials faced, or the original election. The polls right now are showing a strong tightening of the race, and that is a problem for Newsom. But the question is, can he get turnout up? That's really the issue for him. 
the Republicans are going to turn out in this recall. That is going to be clear. The question is, can Newsom get his people to show up? If he does, if Democrats come out to vote, he will win because there are many, many more Democrats in California. But if he can't, then he has some trouble. Alexandra, let's start with you. What do you make of the argument that recall elections are good because they're just more democratic? So I think we have a few different case studies right now, all of which could lead to different interpretations. The San Francisco-based recalls of the, uh, the school board commissioners and the district attorney seem to be based on legitimate concerns about governance. Um, the attempts to recall Newsom began only three months after he had taken office. Um, and the initial recall attempt that, that has ultimately been successful and to go to the ballot was based on uh, concerns about his immigration policy and kind of traditional Republican criticisms of Newsom. Um, It's in fact gotten momentum of its own and it's completely changed into a different thing simply due to the pandemic. And so now people who have a whole variety of gripes with Newsom, such as his response to COVID-19, his um, dining out uh, at a very expensive restaurant while he was telling other people to stay home, the failure to reopen schools um, in California quickly, um, everyone can come out um, and vote their frustration. It's really interesting to look at the Newsom recall and ask the question of whether this is in fact uh, an exercise in direct democracy or whether this is an example of a minority pushing their will and subverting democracy. Republicans are unlikely to get elected to any statewide office. They haven't since uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger was elected first in a recall for governor in California in 2003. Um, And so this is ultimately a Republican attempt to gain a statewide office that they wouldn't be able to win in a traditional election. I think that's what should give pause to people. I don't think that this is necessarily about voters expressing um, their will. It could turn out that a small minority of voters are able to shape the arc of politics in California through successful turnout um, and this quirk in the process. John, that argument that Alexandra outlines there, the second argument, is much closer to my view. I mean, it seems to me Newsom was elected handsomely. He won by a long way. His approval ratings aren't too bad. He's not the greatest governor in California's history, but he hasn't done anything too disastrous. And it does seem like the recall election might succeed, mainly because people in California just don't know that it's going on. This is a real low information election. And if he were to lose, then he would be replaced by a Republican governor who I don't think would be at all to the liking of Californian voters. It doesn't seem like some great exercise in direct democracy to me. How about you? I think that's right. And I think it's worth pointing out how the situation that you and Alexander mentioned, wherein a Republican could win statewide, would come about. The recall ballot itself basically has two parts, if I understand this correctly. The first question is, should Governor Newsom be recalled? And the second question is, who should recall him? So it is entirely possible that Governor Newsom could win 49% support on the first question. That is 51% of voters in this low turnout election could want him out. He could be out. And then in this messy sort of dozens of candidates, effectively, it's not even a jungle primary, it's a jungle election. Someone could win with 15% support. So that points to a crucial distinction, which is that there are some practices that could be democratic, but that are also harmful to the institutions that sustain a functioning democracy, right? There's a difference between 
a governor resigning or being impeached because of misconduct, as, for instance, Andrew Cuomo in my home state just was, and for and for a, a, a faction to take advantage of the ordinary problems in governance and the ordinary dips in approval rating to run someone out of office who was, as John Prito points out, elected by a long shot and has basically been doing okay, but there's a cadre of people who really can't stand him and are resorting to this method that is is superficially democratic but inimical to democratic institutions to get him out of office. One other thing I would point out that hasn't gotten a lot of press is that this recall would not be happening were the recall proponents given extra time to gather signatures because of the pandemic. They requested several more months, a judge granted it. Um, And I think that um, had they not had that extended time, this would never be going to a ballot. Um, And then of course it was timed with um, that disastrous decision by Newsom to go eat out at the French Laundry in Napa Valley during COVID. Had those two things not happened, I don't think we'd be having this discussion today. John, what do you make of the distinction that Alexandra drew between the Newsom recall and the kind of recalls that we're seeing, recall elections that we're seeing involving officials in San Francisco on school boards and in other positions? I mean, I think my view is that once people are elected to serve a term, they should be allowed to serve it unless they break the law, as Andrew Cuomo did, as you already mentioned, or unless they do something really egregious. I mean, I would... I think this is a tool that should be used extremely sparingly, like impeachment. What, what about you? I agree. I'm not sure it's a tool that should exist at all, right? There's a mechanism for getting elected officials out of offense for malfeasance, and that's, that's impeachment. I think when you have this citizen-driven process, it, it may sound good on paper, but it will inevitably fall into this sort of politically driven abuse. I think it would be much better for it to be done away with, and if not done away with, then then tweaked in ways that, that, that Alexander suggested, where you don't have people picking to remove, choosing to remove someone and also choosing their opponent at the same time. You can choose to remove someone from office, but then you're stuck with with a person probably from the same party who fills that role after the governor is gone. Um, But I would be much happier to see this done away with entirely. Alexandra, do you want to defend those San Francisco recalls or do you agree with John? I would draw a distinction between what's happening on the local level and what's happening um, on the state level with the gubernatorial recall. But I would say that all of these highlight the importance of paying attention to who you're voting for. I think until the pandemic, no one in San Francisco took the school board vote that seriously. Um, It was traditionally the launch pad for the politically ambitious who would try and get a seat there and then work their way up to become a member of the board of supervisors and then run for another higher office. Um, I think that the recalls um, and then experiences in the pandemic show how important it is to vote right the first time um, and make sure the right people are in who will represent your interests. Yeah, Alexandra, I guess one of the lessons is there's no such thing as a low stakes election anywhere in America anymore. And the Newsom recall will be resolved one way or another on September the 14th. So I'm sure we'll talk about that a lot more, particularly if he loses that one. Okay, guys, thank you both very much. Before I let you go, it's quiz time. One of The Economist's first forays into Silicon Valley was in October 1978 in an article on so-called hobby computers. We reported that a company called Apple Computer was the latest success story from the home of the semiconductor. Founded two years earlier by two men in their 20s called Steve, we predicted, with typical foresight, that they were on track to become the IBM of personal computing. 
Apple's main challenger in the field came from outside California, the company behind the invention of the handheld calculator 10 years earlier. Which firm was that? Was it Casio? No, it wasn't. It was Texas Instruments. Sorry. Uh, I was going to say IBM was their big competitor. The Economist article at the time said it was Texas Instruments, so I'm going to give Fasman a point, though I'm sure Alexandra may be correct. Jack Kilby, the man behind Texas Instruments' calculator, won a Nobel Prize for his work on integrated circuits. His invention is on display at the American Computer and Robotics Museum, which is also not in California. In which state is it? Is it in Texas? It's not a state I associate with computing. I will guess New York. It is in Bozeman, Montana. So yet another reason to visit Montana. The museum's exhibits span 4,000 years of computing history, apparently, from original cuneiform tablets to the early apples. Harvard scientist E.O. Wilson calls it inch for inch the best museum in the world. TripAdvisor rates it as the number one thing to do in Bozeman. I've always wanted to go to Montana. I think I need to pitch a story. Yeah, I have as well. Now you have a reason to go. Maybe I'll meet you there. Deal. Fasman, I'm sure you've been to Bozeman already. Did you miss the museum when you were there? I did miss the museum. I wrote you a story from Bozeman about uh, the Democratic Socialists of Montana. It's a beautiful state. I worked in a couple of a couple of uh, afternoon hikes while I was out there. It's I can't recommend it highly enough. Well, now Alexandra and I are really jealous. Okay, thank you, Alexandra. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you, Val. Thanks also to John Shields and to Nico Rofast for putting the podcast together. If you like this episode, please tell people about it and leave us a rating and a review. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you